Welcome, friends, to another edition of Adventure Seekers on the Dirtwalker Outdoors podcast. In this episode, we are going to hear from the humble yet passionate Vince Strawbridge. I asked Vince to appear as my guest on the podcast because of his family's fantastic achievement in the world of thru-hiking. Every member of the Strawbridge family, Vince, his wife Monica, and their children, Aiden, June, Henry, and Georgie, have accomplished a feat that few achieve through hiking's triple crap. Beginning southbound on the Pacific Crest Trail in 2018, then again southbound on the Continental Divide Trail in 2020, and finally completing the Appalachian Trail as a family in 2021, the Strawbridge family has crossed the breadth of these United States on foot three times and earned a place in the history of hiking. Vince will give us details of their trail, the water, mountains, the basin, and desert. But he will also tell us about these four amazing teenagers that deserve just as much credit as everyone else. If you are ready, let's hear from Vince Strawbridge. How are you tonight, Vince? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. I was very surprised, actually, that you were so willing to appear on this new show, but I am excited to hear what you have to say. You just completed recently the Triple Crown through hike of the AT with your children, all six of you, and your children are now what age? My oldest is 19 years old, and she's going off to college here in a few days, actually. Then I have a 17-year-old daughter. I have a 16-year-old son and a 14-year-old daughter, so three girls and a boy. That is just incredible. I don't know how I could have managed taking four teenagers together on trail day after day without significant issues between them. I don't want to paint too pretty a picture. Essentially, if you just imagine going with your teenagers and hiking a trail, it just is exactly as you'd imagine. There are all the same fights, there are all the same arguments, there are all the same rivalries. One of the things I think is interesting is that it seems like it's all of those things just exaggerated or heightened. So you'll fights and arguments are more intense, but also you love each other and appreciate each other more. The wider swings of each option. I would imagine within a month on trail, first trail, the six of you probably had a stronger relationship than many of us have within our own family. That's one of the things that really was compelling to me about going. I've always said I'm a pretty good couch dad. The activity, planning, organizing time to spend with them, doing it well, I don't do that all that well when I'm around the house. Thankfully, I had soccer and I coached their soccer teams and really connected to them that way. But I just didn't schedule my days well to really have intentional time with them. And so when the idea for this came up, I don't like many things more than being a dad. And so getting to spend that much time with them day in and day out was one of the sort of major compelling pieces of this for me getting to be with them and be a dad all the time this began with some short hikes and loop hike with the children who did well at it and you and your wife came up with the idea that maybe you should just go through hike a major trail that's right she had sort of developed I don't know when, she says as far back as high school, the idea that someday she might go through hike a trail, and at that time she was thinking of the Appalachian Trail. The people that really got us into backpacking originally, her friend is a mom of, I don't know, I guess they have four kids as well, 
and they had talked about maybe going together and doing the Appalachian Trail. So it was kind of always in the back of her mind as a possibility. I was the latecomer to that show. She was reluctant to invite us, but, but really what happened was that over the course of years of spending time in the woods, because it was the cheap thing that we could afford, developed into a love for it and then just sort of became these longer hikes that we really enjoyed and enjoyed the challenge of, enjoyed the accomplishment of, and it just all fit. Like it seemed like a really, really cool fit. And you chose the PCT as the first trail, or actually when you chose the PCT, the idea was it was probably going to be the only trail because it is a little bit more exotic from where you are. And I understand this being from Texas, the Sierra and a lot of the mountain areas north of Southern California are very exotic to my location. I would think, depending on what part of Texas you're from, the Appalachian Trail might even hold intrigue, you know, just as how, with the greenness of it and those kind of things. I mean, I don't know that it would, I would bet it would not be, at least if you're from West Texas, I'm it would not West be Texas. your preference. <laughs> oh, you are, yeah. It, yeah. it would, it, my kids' favorite parts of the hikes were the desert. I would think that a person from West Texas would not no. really resonate with them. But they love New Mexico, they love Wyoming, the Great Divide Basin, walking through Wyoming. Both of those places were really, really highlights for them on these trails. So I do think there was something to that. It's just, why don't we go do something completely other? Because if it's this once in a lifetime adventure, why would we do what we know? I'm in the land of cactus and mesquite find it hard to believe someone would find the deserts as their favorite part and i spent time in southern california as well did you hike up on the pacific crest trail in southern california no not at that time pacific crest trail i didn't even know it existed at 18 years old i knew the appalachian trail but i didn't know the pacific crest trail i really enjoyed southern california and especially sort of in hindsight i think maybe maybe if you end up walking the pacific crest trail you might like it better than you think. There's some really pretty stuff in the desert. It was not the desert that I expected. It wasn't cactus and sand as much as I expected. There were some long water carries, but but again, we went southbound. And so by the time we hit the desert, we were big walkers and weren't bothered by lack of water and we weren't bothered by long carries or the long climbs. And so we really enjoyed it and it, it's really pretty. We just went back out there after the Appalachian Trail because we were picking up a few fire closure miles that we had left in 2018 in Southern California. And we just loved, we loved it. We loved being out there again on those trails. I'm going to have to try that out. I don't want to have an idea first and it be wrong. I'm going to just go ahead and keep any negative thoughts out of my head and think, yeah, you know what? The desert's probably fabulous <laughs> and go with that. I've not walked any of these trails northbound. It does seem like northbound hikers don't like the deserts as much as the southbound hikers. You're just not as strong. And so we love, like we really love New Mexico uh, coming through on the CDT. That Gila wilderness is fantastic. You walk along the Gila River Gorge there and then you come out and there's like all the Mogollon Indian ruins. And then you come out and walk south. And I would recommend getting in your Audible anything by Cormac McCarthy, like his Border Trilogy or anything, because he wrote all that West Texas and New Mexico story. And you just, you can just feel the stuff he's writing. It's fantastic. That's fabulous. What was it like starting southbound? And you told me July on the PCT. Mm -hmm. What's the PCT like starting southbound? I know this year in particular, and you've alluded to this also, there's a lot of fire closures in Washington this year. Did you have any of those problems? What was that like? 
there was snow. We probably had snow for the first 300 miles. The start of the PCT, when you set out to, to hike the trail, you watch the snow for Washington, and you look at some of that telemetry data, and when the snow disappears from Hart's Pass, they stay awake two weeks and then go. But that doesn't mean the snow's gone from the peaks. So you walk probably 300 miles in melting snow. Some people had some trouble with post-holing and things like that. We went swimming, I was probably a, nearly 200 miles in, in a lake that was completely iced over, except for about a 20, 20 feet in diameter little hole right at the outflow. So you kind of start out walking in that spring smel melting snow and cut across some pretty snowy traverses. So for us, it felt a little intimidating. I mean, we're Floridians. Uh, we've done a lot of training, but it was all on flat ground. And here's the funny thing, you'll appreciate this. We had planned really around the school calendar. So the reason we were southbound hikers had nothing to do with any thoughtful preparation for the trail at all. It had everything to do with when our kids were available and when we finished the school year. So we finished the school year and we head out there and we sort of discover fairly early that we've joined this class of hiker that is not the newbies. This is not beginner hikers. This is not you know, there were very few people that had not already walked at least one major trail. And so they were all starting out walking 20 to 25 miles a day. And me and the, you know, the kids and I were just trying to get, you know, 15, 12 to 15 is what we were sort of initially shooting for. But we had an early snafu where my brother had parked at Rainy Pass and needed to be back in seven days. And I thought it was eight. So we had to push the first seven or eight days. And then we kind of got into a rhythm and we were pretty strong walkers, but we got to Southern Washington. And again, I did not put together that southbound through hike was a tighter weather window and you had to push to get through the Sierra Nevada before winter came or you could get yourself in trouble. Hadn't put all this stuff together in my mind or done math or whatever. So I get to Southern Washington. And I get a message or a text message from my friend. And he says, hey, you need to pick up the pace. And I said, man, we're fine. We just did 18 miles a day through Washington. I thought we only had to do 14 to 17. We're on pace. What are you talking about? He said, yeah, but you got to get through the Sierra. And I said, I know. And then he said, no, you have to get through the Sierra, not to the Sierra by October 7th. So I had this like horrible realization that all of a sudden, instead of walking the 17 miles a day that I thought we had to walk, we had to average. This is an average. We had to average 21, I think it was 21.2 miles a day to make it on time. And essentially that meant every eighth day we could take a day off if we walked 26 miles a day. What did the kids say the first day that you enlightened them with this new information? I did wait a couple of days before I told them because I thought it would not, not be really kind to drop it on them just all in a moment. We had two days that we walked out of Portland. We came back to the trail at Cascade Locks, walked for two days, and then I told them. And they were not terribly excited, but we had just walked two 25-mile days, so I think they sort of felt like, yeah, maybe we can, maybe we can pull this off. But it was hard. It was hard. My wife ended up with plantar fasciitis. I ended up with shin splints. And I think a lot of those, you know, that kind of injury that we were beginning to see was related to pushing higher miles. I think more so was we were just really weary by the time we made it to the Sierra Nevada. Without a lot of zero days. Well, there was this great guy up in Washington and 
we were hiking with these high-level, highly skilled and trained people that were very kind. They were all very helpful. And one guy in particular, his name was Tok, and he was 68 years old, and he walked with his trekking poles somewhere up around his chin height. You know, he's kind of hunched over and walked with his real tall trekking poles. And we walked, we leapfrogged with him for about a day, a day and a half. And he said, I walk two miles an hour uphill, two miles an hour down. I walk 13, 13 hours a day. I just keep walking. And he said, I'll tell you something, boy. If I could give you one piece of advice, it would be this. You can spend money in town, just don't spend time. <laughs> so after that, I really did take it to heart. And we, we did not take many zeros on trail from then on and it was really helpful i think that was probably one of the benefits of being a family we did not get to town and party and then sleep one off we got to town did our business and got out of town which would also make it far less expensive because you have six people to carry food for and buy food for <laughs> well that's the smartest part of talk's advice and really, really didn't see that develop as significantly until the Appalachian Trail. But if I go into town and I buy two meals for my kids, and remember, they're not eating off the kid menu anymore. I buy two meals for my kid. It's incredibly expensive. But if I can get into town, buy two meals and get out of town without paying for a hotel and then another breakfast or another lunch, then I've saved a whole lot of money. Came less frugal than I would otherwise have been about our time in town i just limited our time in town a lot of people tend to take a lot of zeros not so much on the pct but some of the other trails on the next trail that must have really come in handy because on the cdt that you did in 2020 also southbound from what i understand you had to hike to town anyway there were some challenges getting to town initially but we sort of offset that potential by having my dad with us for the first 400 miles. He started in Anaconda, Montana with us. And so we had 400 miles with my dad where we were supported. So we would come to a road crossing and get a ride to town. And one of the reasons that we did that was because there was a lot of concern expressed from without. And we also had concern of our own because we did not know how people would be responding to coronavirus in those places. My suspicion is always that the Facebook forums and the Instagram hashtags don't reflect what is going on out there in the real towns. I kind of wanted to know, but we also wanted to be careful. So we did 400 miles where we had limited or zero contact with anybody in towns. And in those 400 miles or within those 400 miles, we discovered that most of those places were happy to have us. Our resupply essentially strategy is that we send ourselves packages to post offices in those towns. And then we either hitch a ride or, or walk the town in those places. But there were only I would say there were only two very difficult hitches that we had on all of the CDT. Everywhere else, we were really fortunate and were pretty quickly picked up and, and given rods. All six of you. Three and three is typically the way we would split it up. Not many people would be able to haul all six of you to town. I say that, but when people would pull up expecting to take just a few of us, we would say, are you willing to try to fit everybody? So the six of us have fit into a Prius wow. with a sound system in the back and a driver. And the other one that my wife thinks is more impressive is we got into a car. This was just into New Mexico out of Colorado. We got into a Subaru Outback with a couple. They were in the front seat and the passenger seat. And so all 
I guess all six of us must have sat right in that next row because there were two dog crates filling the back. So we did kind of make it a challenge to see if we could squeeze into these cars as long as people were game for it. That would be something to see. <laughs> all six of you in the back seat of a Subaru Outback. I would have taken a picture that night except that it was so cold. It was so cold. It was dark. And I was over looking around. There's a little train depot for like a, you know, one of these sightseeing trains that was up there. And behind it, they had a chicken coop an old chicken coop and I was scouting the chicken coop to see if we could sleep there when we finally had somebody stop and offer us a ride. That's quite a scout. Well kids, tonight we're sleeping in this chicken coop over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, by that time the chicken coop probably would have sounded like a, a good place to sleep related to some places that we ended up staying. Started southbound on the CDT June 24, 2020, right in the middle of the COVID pandemic, seriously in the middle of quarantine. That's right. Both of the other trails would have been very difficult to have navigated, I think. The Pacific Crest Trail, I think that hikers were experiencing a lot of pushback from people in towns. They were raising prices. It wasn't a hiker discount. It was a hiker upcharge. They were getting run out of towns. The Appalachian Trail closed several of the parks that people were going through, and people did ask them to get off trail. The Continental Divide Trail is a little different in that it's so isolated, and it runs through primarily through cowboy country. I didn't know what to expect, and we were fully prepared to walk 400 miles with my dad supporting us and then bail if we found out that it was a bad vibe or a bad scenario or we weren't welcome. But we were surprised at how welcome we ended up being by all of those communities. In fact, they seemed very happy to have us and would say so. But it was very easy to tell when you walked into each town what the protocols were for that town. Some said mask up and stay masked or you know, we would order out food so we wouldn't have to go in anywhere if it seemed a little bit more on the cautious side. And then some would have a sign on the door that said, we hate the governor and he made us make you wear masks. We're sorry. You know, so it was all it was all over the map. But I think being in cowboy country out there probably made the CDT a viable hike last year when we did it. I don't know that there were more than between 60 and 100 finishers of the trail last year altogether. So there were not many of us out there. We were as close to quarantined as we could have been for about six months. Definitely on the CDT. We wanted to be sensitive to that. One, it was an awful year for everybody last year. I mean, just trying to figure that out to navigate it. Sure. And get on down the trail to somewhere else. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Somebody will serve us food somewhere. <laughs> sure, certainly. It might be another 40 miles. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Even with that CDT hike in 2020, that was unanimously your family's favorite trail. Far and away. Yep, yep, far and away. It's interesting because I'm not sure that if you pressed each of them that they would say that it was their favorite for the same reasons. It would be for very different reasons, but it was unanimously the favorite. So my daughter, Georgie, she's lit up by visual, you know, the visual experience of all these things. She loves the sights and the things that she sees. And the CDT tends to pop you up high and keep you up on a ridge. And so you, you look over these big valleys and big plains, just the variety between the desert. The colors are different in Wyoming than they are in Montana, than they are in Colorado. It's just so much change and variety. and beauty. So I think that's probably what impresses or attaches to her. My son, he would walk on the PCT and he would be so angry that they would cut a switchback that he thought was too shallow. So he would be so mad at me that I would tell him he couldn't cut switchbacks. But on the CDT, 
it's a whole different ballgame. There's even some route finding and bushwhacking and, and it's a create your own kind of trail experience in some ways in a lot of areas. And so he loved that about it. He would stand up there, look at his phone, try to navigate and say, hey, do you think we, if we went through that pass, we could get there faster? <laughs> so we did a lot of that. And I think that's what he loved about it, that part of the experience. Yeah, it was an interesting trail. I think it just had something for everybody in very different ways that we all really appreciated. What was your favorite section of the CDT, your personal favorite? Yeah, that's a tough question. Oh, gosh, that is so hard. I don't know what I would want without any other, but I think I could get away with saying Wyoming uh, as a state and call that a section and act like I've answered your question just because Wyoming had so much. Between the Wind River Range, Yellowstone, and the Great Divide Basin, it was like you were in three different worlds. It's kind of a cop-out, but I think I'd say Wyoming. We can definitely listen to that answer. <laughs> I didn't ask you this earlier, but we're going to jump back and jump forward like a time machine here. Your favorite section of the PCT, and you can give roughly the same answer, just don't say Wyoming. <laughs> oh, there you go. I would say that's a little easier. I think that will, oh, no, not easier. Ooh, I'm going to say the Sierra. It's hard to not be just wowed and overwhelmed by all that it is. It's a different world when you step into the Sierra on that trail. We hadn't experienced anything like it before that. That's incredible. Well, the Cascades are really amazing. They really are beautiful and they're, they're green like nothing else is green that we've seen. The mountains are really beautiful and rolling and all that stuff. But there's something, I don't know that I could find the word to describe it, but there's something, they're just intimidating. That's really intimidating about those mountains. You kind of drop into these big granite gorges and you think, where am I? How am I going to get through this? I'm looking forward to that myself, I think. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. I think you will love the Sierra Nevada. Have you been in that range uh, much at all? No, not the Sierra. The great part about some of those places, as many times as you watch somebody's YouTube channel, as many pictures as you see, you still get there and you're just like, oh, okay, <laughs> this is more than I thought it would be. It's great. I love the Sierra. That's awesome. And then the next question is, and we'll just ask this on the CDT and then we'll move to the AT in a moment. Your least favorite part of the CDT. You already said that you just love New Mexico, so I don't know what you're going to give me. <laughs> Mine would be experiential, not a place. We did not know this, but my second daughter had severe anemia and probably developed it somewhere in Wyoming because she got really strong in Montana and was walking well. She's always been our caboose, so she's always been slowing us down. It just got worse and worse and worse. And that was probably the hardest thing for me was to experience the trail through her, with her and through that difficulty. There was just kind of this underlying sadness for me in that trail. Now, I was proud of her for finishing. She did great. She fought through. It was harder than we could have imagined, and she still did it, and I'm sure reaps all the benefits of it. But we got home and went to the doctor and got some blood work and found out that she had severe anemia. And the doctor said, I'm surprised she's not having trouble breathing just sitting still. And it really did put a damper on that whole trail for me in reflection, although she found that out, and she was walking around the house for three days saying, I had severe anemia and you made me walk 3,000 miles. Like she wore it like a badge of honor. <laughs> 3,000 miles in 131 days. If you did the math based on 3,000, you would end up with too fast a pace because there are so many alternates that you have option to take. I didn't run the math, but I would say we walked between 27 and 2,800, probably closer to 2,800 by the time all was said and done. 
because most people don't realize, and I really went over this last week in an interview with another CDT hiker on trail currently, that in many places of the CDT, there isn't necessarily a defined route to follow anyway. And sometimes you just got to make it up as long as you're within that 50 mile corridor of the continental divide itself. Yeah, that's right. So we did some of the paths that we chose, or some of the alternates that we chose were longer, and some of them were shorter. There's a Super Butte alternate that we did not take. It would have cut off another 200 and some miles, and we did not take that. We opted to take, going through the Wind River Range, there are a couple of alternates that are really worth taking, and we did the Circuit of the Towers, and that was really beautiful. Reality is, by the time we got to New Mexico, we had one thing on our mind, and that was getting done. So if we found a shortcut, we took it. So we, we were flying through New Mexico. We even took off across a bunch of, you know, sort of open desert valleys, you know, sort of picking our way through the cactus and creosote or whatever that plant is. Well, a lot of people try to get through New Mexico in a hurry when they're northbound. I can understand that. Although there are some <laughs> incredible parts of New Mexico, but to me, they basically look like home. So I would just be in a hurry to get going. You know, it's so funny because of your experience, it would be so different. But, you know, my kids found little like they found crystal formations in the dirt and they love finding those. A lot of just gems and rocks and geodes and all sorts of stuff that we could look at and see. But then also like, you know, big mesas and buttes and just weird spires and weird shaped rocks and all that stuff. We liked it. And we, we even liked the colors. But yeah, if I were from West Texas, I would be less enamored. What about the water situation in New Mexico in particular? I know that that's one of the most talked about sections in through hiking is filtering water from cattle troughs and things like that in New Mexico. What did your kids think of that? They were not terribly bothered, but by the time they're in southern New Mexico, you know, they had already walked whatever that is, you know, 2,600 or 4,600 miles, you know, they'd walked a long way and we've had a lot of water that is less than savory along the way. And so it wasn't like it came as a big shock. And I don't know who of your listeners is thinking about a through hike, but I would say that's a southbound trail. If I had the PCT to do again, I would do it southbound. I think I might even do the AT southbound, especially on those two western trails. What you find is that when you need the strength, you have the strength the most. In the spring, when it's early and you need water and the water carriers are tight together up north, but when you get down to the bottom, 16, 20, 25 miles carrying water doesn't feel like that big a deal. Most of the sources in New Mexico, by the time you get down there, are going to be solar wells that they're pumping up into cattle troughs. But there's usually a feeder pipe. So you're getting the water straight out of the ground. It's good water. There were a couple of times when we had to sort of dig down and reach down into wells that had floating mice and stuff like that in them. They weren't the greatest. But one in particular was a seat. It was a pipe spring that came out of a seat under an overhang in the desert. And the seat was just maybe standing water three to four inches. And it was full of cow and other animal feces and it was just nasty so we double filtered and drank it but it tasted horrible and i ended up with giardia and i believe it was from that water spot but by and large you're talking 16 to 18 mile carries at the most and you're talking about water that's coming for the most part straight out of the ground straight out of the ground out of a solar well or if it's coming from a pipe spring it's coming up from a pretty decent spring so i didn't have anything to complain about on the waterfront there I think probably, this is what I would guess, I would guess northbounders are probably not carrying water as far. If you're hiking the CDT someday and you see it says sink or something like a, a sink, I would plan not to get water there because they just have 
either bulldozed or dug out somewhere over the course of time, these holes in the ground, and it's where cattle go and drink. And you don't want to be drinking out of those places. That may be true. Most northbounders I see talk about the unsavory water conditions and always talk about probably exactly what you're speaking of there, the sink. Did you finish the CDT in November? Yes, we finished the CDT in November 2nd of 2020. And then moving along, I guess y'all sat around at Christmas and through the holidays and thought, you know what, let's go do the Appalachian Trail. (laughs) (laughs) Well, between after the PCT, when I talked to my wife about hiking the two other trails, I had pre-negotiated the AT. The AT was always in the cards. So after the PCT, we had committed to try to finish the Triple Crown. We did not know that we for sure could pull it off. Because, you know, and all this stuff's up for grabs and you don't really know what to happen. But that's really one of the reasons also that we did the CDT second was to get what we felt was the big sort of monkey off our back. So the one that we thought was the biggest and scariest, go ahead and get it out of the way. And then we turned, I think it was, what is that, four months? Yeah, just four months later and started the AT going northbound. March 1st in Georgia. I'm betting that was cold. It was pretty miserable. It was on and off miserable. I think the people that started a couple weeks before us had it a lot worse, and they ran into some snow. We had snow twice, but it, there's a lot of cold rain, and cold rain to me is a lot worse than, than snow. I'd rather be in snow. So we spent a lot of time wet. We spent a lot of time cold. And honestly, if you start that early on the AT, March 1st till – it wasn't probably until Northern Virginia, coming out of the other side of Virginia, that we started to see – anything that looked really pretty because everything before that was kind of leafless and brown and still not quite yet spring. So somewhere in northern Virginia, it started to look a lot better to us. And also March 1st is generally when the big bubble starts northbound on the AT. Were you right along with that or did you and your kids hiking 20 miles a day just get ahead of them? I didn't really know what to expect. I did not do a whole lot of research. We are Florida people and we're closer to the AT and we've been on that more than any other, but we didn't really know what it was like. And I did not do nearly the research for this one that I had done for the other two, probably just a little bit assured that we could figure it out as we went. And the only thing I was really concerned about on that was resupply. I wasn't concerned about other things. And so what we found was that the hikers on the AT are a very different set. They're very different group of people, at least the northbounders. And they kind of started later in the morning than us. We would see tents still standing at nine and 10 o'clock. And then tents would be set up at these shelters at three and four o'clock. And we were walking from dawn until dark just because that's what we do. And that's what we've done all along because of the people that we learn from. And so we often would run into people really were very concerned about what shelter we were staying at that night. And we would just say, we don't have any idea where we're staying tonight. And they looked at us like we were from another planet. And we just said, no, we're going to walk till we can't walk anymore. And that's what we did. We stealth camped a lot. We hid in the woods and, you know, found some nice soft leaves and slept in the trees a lot and kind of had a different trail experience than other people. But to your point, we stopped seeing hikers, uh, through hikers, probably after Virginia. So we saw them for the first, you know, three or four weeks and, and then we didn't see them anymore. I believe that because 113 days on the AT is a fast pace there also. I reckon that your staying away from town sort of continued on with the hike on the Appalachian Trail. 
that's right. Actually, my resupply strategy was designed to keep us out of town. It wasn't about getting done fast. It was just I wanted to save the hassle of having to hitch to town, you know, because going to town takes you so much time. So the AT is great in that sense. You can actually, if you wanted to, send yourself packages or food or resupply boxes and never once leave the trail. I think I had scheduled three hitches the whole trail. That doesn't seem to be the common practice anymore. A lot of people on the AT look forward to that town experience and the community and things like that. But your approach to the AT was very similar to the same approach that you used on the other trails. And that was just enjoy the trail itself. Yeah, that's right. That's the way that we did it. I think it probably saved us time and saved us money and probably did in some way limit our experience in terms of the social aspect with the other hikers. But we had a really cool experience where there is a trail angel connected to that trail, uh, primarily to that trail. He really just services all of them, but he drives around in his van, sleeps in his van, and he has a deep fryer and a skillet and he cooks for hikers. He feeds hikers. That's all he does all the time. And this year, because there was such high pressure on the Appalachian Trail, rather than stay in the middle of the bubble where he thought he couldn't keep up with the level of demand that he would have and the numbers that he would have, he stayed, for the most part, he stayed with the front-running bubbles of hikers, which we were one of those. So there ended up being about five or six or seven of us, groups of us. We ended up probably in that second or third of the bubbles. We were the bubble ourselves and occasionally we'd have another hiker with us, but not very often. But he would just kind of find us. And the nice thing about that was that while we didn't leapfrog those other bubbles very often, he would keep us informed about where they were. Like there was another group of hikers that were just between their high school and college year. They called themselves the Gap Year Gang. Really neat, neat, neat young guys. We saw him in Damascus and then we didn't see him again till I want to say Vermont, maybe we didn't see him again, but we loved hearing about him. And so we felt like we were a part of it a little bit more than we had on the other trails. And I think that was just primarily because of that trail angel. His name is Fresh Ground. And he kind of kept us all sort of feeling connected up there on the front end. Fresh Ground is practically famous at this point. I think he's on 20 or so different YouTube channels and all over Facebook. Obviously a fascinating guy. He was great. He was great to my kids. They loved seeing him. He really did. He loved seeing us. He made our experience significantly better. In fact, Georgie is my youngest. She's my 14-year-old. She's super skinny. She's a picky eater. She's like, it is a fight to keep her weight up on the trail because she's picky. Well, she was kind of running calorie deficit somewhere in Virginia. Is it Virginia? It was Pennsylvania when we first started to see him with some frequency. And at some point, she really, you could tell she finally got caught up because she was full of energy. And she was like, you know, Dad, I, I don't even think I'm hungry anymore. <laughs> it was the first time she said that ever on a trail. <laughs> That's fantastic. He really helped you along there through the hard part. Again, the question, the big question, because it's what everyone always wants to know. Your favorite part of the Appalachian Trail. I think the 100 mile wilderness and not just because it was the finish. It's kind of the first time on that trail when we stepped up onto a vista and I looked around and I thought this is more like it. You just you can't see any towns. You can't see cities. You can't see anything. It stretches away forever. Tons of lakes everywhere. Beautiful, big, wide open lakes, wildlife. We saw we saw bear. We saw moose. We saw all sorts of stuff back in there. And then it really does 
that trail is, it's a clever finish to take you up Katahdin. It's a spectacular hike. And then you get to the top and you get to look around at all the wilderness all around you. It's beautiful. I think the 100 mile wilderness in Maine is by far my favorite. Were I on my Triple Crown hike, the conclusion of the Appalachian Trail, the third hike of the Triple Crown, I'm in the 100-mile wilderness. Katahdin is not very far. That would seem to be a very emotional time. I had more of that on the Pacific Crest Trail, actually. I probably could have predicted that there would be more trails on that one. We were finishing the Pacific Crest Trail, and I looked at Henry, and I was like, you just want to to keep going? We can hop over that wall and keep walking. He didn't much want to go with me at that time, but there were some things that shifted. Like I'll give you this. This is an example, and I think this is maybe instructive. When we started the Appalachian Trail, there was a family from Lakeland, our town, our hometown here in Florida, that had contacted us right after we finished the Pacific Crest Trail and said that it was their dream to hike the Appalachian Trail someday. They wanted to talk to us about how they could pull it off as a family, that kind of stuff. We had a great conversation. But you flash forward two years later, or whatever it is, two and a half years later, three years later, and we're thinking about the logistics about starting the Appalachian Trail. And he and I talked. We're good friends. And he and I talked. And he said they were thinking about doing a section on the Appalachian Trail. So we invited them to come with us. He has six kids. Four are adopted. It was he and his wife, his six kids, my wife and myself and our four kids. And we had two extra kids from town that had planned to come the whole way with us. So we were 17 people in all. The reason I'm telling you all this is that one of the things that was fascinating is this is a backpacking family. This is a hiking family. They are not unexposed to this kind of experience. But watching my kids with them, the level of savvy, sophistication, you would look at my kids and watch them. And it seems almost intuitive, but it's not. It's learned over, you know, it's learned over 5,000 miles of hiking at that time that they really have developed some skills that are very efficient. Like a simple example would be, they don't say how much water should I carry? They say, how far is the next water? They just know, they skip to the math. Georgie knows that for herself, she needs a certain amount of water. And they were watching out for this other family and taking care of them and setting up their tents and helping with their ailments. I did not know it, but Georgie, my youngest daughter, knew how to tape people's Achilles when they were hurting. And they were really savvy. And I didn't quite get how savvy they were. And I'm telling you all that to say that by the time we get to the Katahdin, some of the bloom is off the rose. We're kind of like we're seasoned hikers in some way. And so it is filled with some of that. I cannot believe we did this big thing. But on the other side, it feels a little more like, well, of course we did this thing. That's what we do. We hike. <laughs> you know, so 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 in some way, I was kind of hiking up that mountain with seasoned hikers, and we all just kind of touched the sign, and we're like, yeah, we did it, you know? And I know that over the next years, I know that over the even probably the next months, there'll be some reflection where I think. And And I do. I still think that. You know this because of your exposure to these kinds of stats and this kind of industry is that the likelihood of someone, some one single person starting and completing a through hike are not great. If you compound that by six people, it makes it even more unlikely. And then to do it three times makes it even more unlikely. And I'm not saying that to say we're amazing. I'm saying that to say, holy cow, the things that could have happened to stop this that didn't. What about all those things? What about all the things that did happen that didn't have to happen that made it possible? 
we lost our way, but we found our kid. You know, I lost Georgie for four hours, but she wasn't lost. You know, we found her again. We got lost in the woods and found our way back. And like, there's all sorts of things that happened. People didn't trip and <laughs> nobody broke an ankle. Nobody had a debilitating injury that got them off trail. You know, so it's just amazing when you start to piece all that stuff together. It's pretty amazing. But for some reason, in that moment, standing on top of Katahdin, I was actually more enamored with the moment for, I told you about that family, their oldest boy who is adopted. He was born in Uganda. They adopted him when he was three. It was their dream to hike the Appalachian Trail as a family, and they couldn't do it. But when those two boys from Lakeland that were going to hike with my family, when they decided they couldn't do it, we invited their oldest son to finish with us because he said that he wanted to hike the whole thing. And his dad had come out to join him to finish that hike to Katahdin. So it was a special moment for us, really special. But in some way, I was really distracted by their moment because it was such a cool thing for that boy and his dad to go up and touch that sign together when it kind of had been the dad's dream. That was really cool. And we discussed this a little earlier, and you already showed some of your attention on this subject. When I asked what's next for you, you really want to do something to connect with those youth like that and help them along on these adventures or also understand people, what's going on in their mind in these types of situations. I do think there's something very significant about walking, and there's something very significant about walking for a long time an experience of walking, an experience of being pushed to your limits, an experience of trying to rise to meet a challenge, an experience of time wearing you down and wearing you out in the good ways that it has to offer. I would love the idea of trying to facilitate something like that and share that experience with some other kids. I don't have any particular or specific plans about that. I just sort of have it sort of loosely held out in front of me. My kids all say they're retired, but I don't really believe them. <laughs> I understand when you say you have this idea loosely held out in front of you. Often it just takes one spark to turn that idea into something else. And then it comes to fruition often before you even know what's going on. That may be in your yeah, future. Yeah. You know, I think that's one of the great things if I were going to correlate it to the trail experience. You know, you have this big goal that is clear on a trail, but you really only accomplish it just one step at a time. You know, you just take the next step. And I think if you listen well and you attend well to what is in front of you, then and you really take the next step paying attention to what's coming, then I think you can put yourself in a pretty good spot when it comes to that. Those kinds of questions. It is hard. It's hard to listen well with all the expectations and busyness and all those kinds of things. That's certainly one of the things that overwhelms me every time I come home is how fast everything moves and how much multitasking I'm, I expect myself to do. One thing I do like about hiking and one thing I've noticed, just walking down the road, life slows down. There's a great line in the book called Walking to Listen by Andrew Forstoffel, I think. And he says at some point he's overwhelmed and amazed by the cars that are driving by him at 80 miles an hour. And he thinks that's not, that's not the pace life's supposed to be lived. That's not the pace of life. Life is at the pace of walking. That's the way it's supposed to be. I could almost agree with that wholeheartedly. I thought it was really neat. Well, Vince, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation tonight. I appreciate you coming on to talk to me and whoever listens to this. And I think I really want to ask you to come back at some later date, especially if you get some of these things going that you're interested in doing. 
Sure, that'd be fun. I'd really appreciate it. I appreciate the time with you. It's especially fun. I was really intrigued because I think it's neat when it's kind of a crossover. I mean, you're not just doing through hike. You're talking about a lot of different kind of things. And the people that are listening to you are interested in other things. And I do think there are a lot of corollaries between them. But I'm also fascinated by some of the differences, you know, between the different types of adventuring and the similarities. It's really fun. That is exactly why I do it. Next week, I have an interview with Rusty Coons. And right now, most hikers and backpackers have no idea who he is. But he has completed the Missouri River 340-mile race six times. And he is very outspoken about that, loves that race. And the Missouri River 340, or MR340 as they call it, is 340 miles, of course, in 85 hours. And it is just incredible. It is now on my list of things I must do, uh, even (laughs) though at some point everyone is hallucinating and seeing elephants on the side of the river and all sorts of things like that. But it's still the same type of person. A lot of people choose backpacking, mountaineering, whatever their adventure may be, but it's almost like they have that same spark in their heart that makes them want to do this thing. We just all choose different outlets. And that's kind of what I try to put together. That's neat. I'm glad you're doing it. And thanks for having me. I do hope you, as a listener, can now understand why I asked Vince to appear on this podcast. It takes a special type of person to tighten up a backpack lace up some trail runners, and through-hike a 3,000-mile trail. In this case, six wonderful, outdoor-loving family members did that very thing three times. How exceptional is that? I hope you are inspired. Listen next time for the Adventure Seeker segment where I finally get an interview with solo canoe adventurer Neil Moore. Neil is on a solo expedition from the Columbia River of Oregon all the way across the country to the Hudson River in New York and the Statue of Liberty. For 18 months, he has paddled and portaged through Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Montana, south of New Orleans, and now paddles his way north, hoping and striving to beat winter and accomplish his outstanding goal. Stay tuned for more great content from the Dirtwalker Outdoors podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Google, or Apple, and find me on Facebook or Instagram. Until then, Dirt Walker, off trail.